We're in Revelation chapter 2. Let's open up our Bibles there. As today we look at the letter to the Ephesians. And an outline. We're going to see the outline pretty consistent as we go through the letters to the seven churches. They're pretty much the same. First of all, we see the Christians. And so he mentions the angel and the church. And then he, we're going to see the Christ. How Jesus reveals himself to each different church is, is unique. And then the commendation. Uh, for the most part, most of the churches have at least some form of commendation, things that we can glean. But then the conviction. So there's seven churches. Uh, five of them were off. There were things that needed to be corrected. And so we're going to learn from that as well. And then after the conviction is the counsel. Jesus is going to say, okay, this is what you're doing wrong. And this is what you need to do in order to get right. And then the last thing is the consequences. And so uh, one of the things that I've noticed in going through the book of Revelation and getting to the letters, eventually we're going to get to the rapture. We're going to get to all the crazy things that we have regarding prophecy. But the first thing we see is that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And the first thing we see is that God wants us to examine our own lives to see where we are in our walks with him. And so as we go through in the different weeks, you know, some things are going to be more applicable. Um, and you're, there's always something, I think, that we can probably take away as far as areas that we need to grow in. But today's study, uh, to me, is, is just so beautiful. It's so um, uh, applicable because I think it, it, all of us can probably say that we're not really loving the Lord the way that we should. We're, we're not like there in that place uh, of man where we belong because we get so distracted along the way. And so this study to me is one of my favorites. And so we see, uh, first of all, Revelation chapter 2, the, the Christians. He mentions in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus. He wants him to write these things. And so it's to the angel. Now, this word in, in the Greek language, about seven times in the New Testament, it's translated messenger. And so Jesus, remember, I mean, the Father gave Jesus this message. Jesus gave it to, to the angel, or, and then sometimes Jesus would give it directly to John. And the Lord told John, as he was there on the island of Patmos, write this letter to the seven churches. Ephesus was the first in the postal route. It was probably the most prominent of the seven churches because it was through Ephesus that really all the other churches were, were founded because the word spread through the church of Ephesus. Say. And so what we see is that the, it's, he's writing it, interesting, to the angel of the church. Now there are a few people who believe that's in reference to a literal angel who guards the church, but most people believe that that's in reference to the pastor, to the one who, who was called to lead the church and feed the church and shepherd the church and watch over the church. Because what he wants to do is he wants to tell the pastor to tell the people. And so he writes it to that messenger. Uh, and what we find is that that's all messengers are. We as pastors are, are supposed to be uh, distributors, not manufacturers. We don't make up our own message. We give to you what Jesus has given 
to us. That's our responsibility. That's why it's so important whenever you're teaching a Bible study or if the Lord ever calls you out to be a pastor one day, that you be able to say the same thing that Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11:23. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And so Jesus says, write uh, that pastor a letter. And so he's going to give him the word who then is supposed to give it to others. And why would we give it to you? Because we want you to be blessed. We want you to be empowered. We want you to have victory. And that's what we see here. He's, he's writing this letter to the Christians, to, to the leadership, and that would include all teachers as well, and then to the fellowship, and that is the church. Notice there in verse 1, uh, there at Ephesus. And so Ephesus was a, a great city of the day, probably about a half a million people in population. It was there in the province of Asia Minor, and it was kind of a travel hub on the highway to Rome. It was the primary port on the Asian coast. If you guys have a map in the back of your Bibles, you can see it right there. It was that road, uh, the Arcadian Way. I mean, just so many people traveled through there. There in Ephesus, they had one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the temple to the goddess Artemis. They believed that fell down from heaven. And so people would travel to Ephesus from all over the world. They even had an amphitheater that seated 25,000 people. And so imagine the plays that were, were there. Uh, for those of you who went to Israel with us, you might remember the amphitheater there in Caesarea. Remember that one? Or you might remember the one that we saw in Beth Sheehan. You can get that visual. Those were small in comparison to this theater right here. And so there in Ephesus, this city like London or Rome or Paris or Los Angeles, New York, an amazing uh, city, God had done a work. You, got, you might remember that the church was planted by Paul the Apostle on his third missionary journey. And you read that in Acts chapter 19. And it was a, a powerful work done in God's perfect timing. You might remember there... Yeah, that in the beginning uh, of Paul's second missionary journey, he went up to Galatia area, and then he wanted to go to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit did not permit him to preach the word in Ephesus. And so he continued on, and he went to Troas, and eventually he went to Greece and Macedonia. And then on his way back to Jerusalem, he made a pit stop in Ephesus. And when he was there, they said they wanted him to stay in the synagogue. They wanted him to stay, but he said, no, I've got to keep the the feast in Jerusalem, but Lord willing, I'll be back. And sure enough, on the third missionary journey, it was God's perfect timing. The hearts were ready. The city was ripe. And God did a great work in Ephesus. This crazy city where there was so much wickedness, so much magic, so much demon teachings. I mean, so much craziness. God did a beautiful work and Paul was there and you read it in Acts chapter 19 where he taught for three years and there was such a great impact there that impacted the economy and it was just amazing what God did 
in, in Ephesus. Over the years, the church was blessed with great brothers and sisters such as Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla and eventually Timothy pastored the church there and according to church history, John pastored the church there before he was exiled to Patmos. And so this was an absolutely amazing, supernatural, powerful work of God, right? And so there's the letter. These are the Christians. And so the Lord has a word for them. We see, secondly, the Christ. Notice again in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is, is not from John. This is not from Paul. This is not from Manny. This is from Jesus. The one who holds the, the seven stars in his right hand. You know, it's interesting. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16... It says he had in his right hand seven stars. But now in verse 17, it says that he holds in his right hand the seven stars. A little more detail. The, the Greek word here, it actually comes from a root word that, that means power. And so it speaks of having power over, to be master of. How God not only has these pastors, you know, in that he, he has them, he, he also holds them. Not only does he have these leaders, he leads these leaders. And it's so cool to know that about your leaders, about your pastor, that Jesus has them there in his hands, selecting them, protecting them. When we as leaders answer that call of God, uh, it's so cool to know that we have that man, that, that blessing to be able to be held by him. And so... Uh, sometimes, I don't know if, uh, if you guys ever do this, but at the end of my letter or an email, I might write, you know, instead of sincerely, I'll put like, in his grip, Manny. Because that's who we are. We're, we're in his hands. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's writing this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And then secondly, it says right here, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now again, if you look back at verse 13, we see a little different detail. Look at verse 13. It just says in, in verse 13 that he's in, he's in the midst of the seven lampstands. But here we see that he walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. And it's so important for us to know this about Jesus in the church. That he's, not, he's not absent, you know, distantly. No, he's present personally you guys remember matthew eighteen twenty? he said where two or three are gathered together in my name there i am in the midst of them and in a personal way we know god is omnipresent god is everywhere at all times but when you get together in the name of jesus there's a special manifest presence of jesus and this is what we're talking about. When it comes to the church, there ain't nothing like the church. And the Lord says, I'm there walking in the midst of them. You know, he's not just controlling the church. He's strolling in the church up and down the aisles, a constant companion in our journey as a congregation. If you think about it, this is the way that it all began way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3 in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden 
in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, one of the things about this season of the coronavirus is a lot of people go walking, huh, nowadays. Any of you guys go walking? How many of you think you should start? No, I'm just joking. You know, so, but isn't it really awesome to go walking in the cool of the day? We live in Southern California, and uh, I will tell you this, that lately it's been a little bit warmer, and some people are telling me, oh, it's so hot, so hot. And when you've been to Cambodia, you're like, this ain't nothing. So it doesn't bother you at all. But I will say this, though. I, I just praise God. We have beautiful weather. And we're, when we're walking and that, that temperature is just right in the cool of the day, and I'm walking with my wife, or I'm walking with my friends, I mean, it's an awesome thing. And, and so here was when, when God first made man, this is what they used to do. They would walk together there in the garden. And here we see Jesus walking in the midst of the church. You know, it's so important for us, and we're going to see the connection in this, because we need to walk with him again. I think sometimes we, we, we we're going to see later that it's something that we neglect to do. You know, there was a time when Adam and Eve walked with God and then sin separated them for a season, but then salvation restored that relationship, not physically, but spiritually. And this is the way it should be. You know, even in the Old Testament, we read in Micah chapter 3, verse 8, I mean 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is our life. To walk humbly with our God. And so that's what we see here. There's that walk with. Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands. But there's also what's known as a walk through. I remember when I was young... And I used to work at the market. I remember um, every once in a while we would have the president of the company do a walkthrough in the market. Uh, Do any of you guys old enough to remember a man by the name of Bill Davila who was the president of Vons? Do you guys remember him? Okay, so we're the old people (laughs) here. Anyways, I remember, um, you know, they would say, well, Bill Davila's coming through. And so everybody, everybody that was employed there was now working at the same time, simultaneously, just cleaning everything. I mean, we're talking about like the, the drains were spotless and everything looked perfect, right? Why? Because Bill Davila was now doing a walkthrough. What was that? That was an, an inspection. You see, and, and that's also what Jesus is communicating here. He's, he says, I'm, I'm the one who walks in the midst of the church. And I'm scrutinizing everything that's going on with my eyes of omniscience. And I see that in the congregation. And I see what's going on in the Christian. And, and what we see here is the Lord then is able to say what's right and what's wrong. And he begins, first of all, with the commendation. And we see three things that kind of stand out. Letter A, they're hardworking. Letter B, they're enduring. And letter C, they're discerning. And so in the commendation, we're going to see, and I think it's good to learn from the things they did right. I think it's good to learn. 
Look at, at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So commendation, a good thing that they, good things they were doing. And, and look at verse 6 also. That's a commendation. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so commendation, and I think it's good to learn from this, that they were hardworking. The, the Greek word there is the word ergon, and it refers to working in a business, employment, occupation, any enterprise undertaking production and accomplishment of hand or mind, both physically and mentally. So you're there, and they were, they were working, they were being productive, they were being used by God. So they were hardworking. There, there's the word labor here, another Greek word that refers to intense labor, united with troublesome toil. Uh, it, it means to grow weary there in verse 3, tired, exhausted, with toil or burdens, to labor with wearisome effort. No, and, and you think of your life, some of you guys are out there digging holes. Some of you guys are out there working hard. Um, and some of you guys are in here in the church and you're working hard. And that this is what they were doing, right? I mean, it's just an amazing thing to see how even in verse 3, the Lord says that you have not uh, become weary. Uh, the King James Version says that you haven't fainted. A lot of people, they used to work for the Lord. They used to serve the Lord with passion and vigor and sacrifice and suffering to the point of toil, but they're not doing that anymore. These guys did. They were still there. The church of Ephesus had been founded in probably A.D. 52. Uh, Paul wrote the letter to them, maybe around A.D. 61. Now we're talking about A.D. 95, 30 years later, and they're still serving the Lord to the point of troublesome toil. They, they were in, enduring. We read that word patience there in verses 2 and 3. And this Greek word, it speaks of uh, steadfastness, a constancy, an endurance. In the New Testament, this word speaks of a person who's not swayed from their service or, or Christ, even in the midst of suffering. They, they persevered, it says there in, in verse 3. And that means to bear the burden, uh, to persevere under pressure. They, they carried the load. They took the yoke of Christ upon them. And he, and he was just commending them. And, and I will say that to you guys. Praise God, you're here. You're here. And those of you that are watching, you're watching. Praise God, you're still there. Because this time of testing, in which it's kind of like the, the tree is being shaken, many people are not there anymore. They're not here anymore. But he's saying, praise God, you're still standing, you're enduring, you're persevering. And these guys were, were still, you know, serving. They were not only hardworking and enduring, they were also discerning. He says there that you cannot uh, bear those who are, who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not, and you found them to be liars. 
And so they could detect false doctrine like that. These guys would come into the church and they would say, Hey, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Hey, I'm an apostle. Hey, I'm a teacher. Guys would exalt themselves. And these guys in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, were wise enough. They knew the word enough. They had the spirit of discernment to know, No, those guys are liars. And so they were able to protect the flock. They were not led astray. You know, there, there's a lot you can read in church history about the church of Ephesus. I wanted to give you guys a lot of information, but um, you could find it for yourself or whatever. But there, there's one that I want to share with you, an interesting reference to the church by Ignatius of Antioch, who wrote to them, and this is what he said back then. He said to this, the, the church of Ephesus, you all live according to truth and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not, you not so much as listen to anyone if they speak anything except concerning Jesus Christ and truth. I have heard that some strangers came your way with a wicked teaching, but you did not let them sow it among you. You stopped up your ears to prevent admitting what they disseminated. And so here's a church. Think about it nowadays, you guys. We're living in an age where there's not a lot of churches that are very protective. There's not a lot of churches will say, we're going to divide over this. You say that, you know, being gay is okay. It's not. You know, we're, we're, we're going to stand strong, right? I mean, when we're, looking, we're living in days where some people would deny even the Trinity, Ephesians would say, no, that doctrine does not belong in here. That's a lie. You, you, this is how they were, even to the point where he says in verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, this was again, uh, this is another uh, proof that we have the letter is late. Because um, the, the Nicolaitans, there was never a false doctrine that Paul ever spoke of. But it reared its ugly head later on in the church history. We don't have a lot of information about it. Other than that, other than that the church fathers, they simply linked this doctrine to Nicholas, who was one of the seven mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 6. Remember one of the original deacons who apparently went uh, uh, astray. And so we're going to see later it's mentioned when uh, John writes to the church of Pergamum, and there he talks about really their, their sin and their indulgence. Uh, Clement of Alexandria did say this. He said, The Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading to a life of self-indulgence. And so they, imagine that, teaching that in the church. Just go ahead and do whatever you want and indulge in the flesh. And, and, you know, uh, John, is, he just says, listen, you guys worked hard. You got hit hard, but you got up. You endured. Uh, it's such a crazy work, beautiful work that God did there. And not only, not only you are not tolerating the deeds of, of Nicolaitans, you hate it. You hate those deeds. And so they didn't hate the Nicolaitans. And I need to say that as a quick side note, because I think sometimes people hate people because they don't, they don't agree with them in doctrine or politics or whatever it might be. Listen, we can't hate people, but we got to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, of the heretics. That's what we see this church had. 
they were amazing when you look at the commendation. Busy builders, movers in ministry, intensely, immensely involved, willing to serve and suffer and make sacrifices. They were discerning. They were orthodox. They would not compromise in their Christian creed. They were able to detect and reject false uh, teachers and false apostles. And so think about that. When you, when you look at a church or a person like that, you would think they're A-OK. But Ephesus got an F. Did you guys know that? <laughs> Imagine that after all that stuff, you would figure they're right on. But they weren't. Because look what the Lord says in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left. Your first love. They had left their first love. Not that they they lost their first love, but they they left their first love. To to leave, it means uh, to go away from. It means to depart. You know, you can do all that stuff. And yet, you might be one who has left your first love. You know, when someone leaves the Lord, it doesn't usually happen overnight in a day. It usually happens as someone just drifts away. And the personal, intimate relationship becomes like a rut or a routine. And the, and the movement of God, it becomes like a, a machine. And it's not personal, it becomes more mechanical. And you're going through the motions, but there's really no like emotion to it. You know, one of the interesting things about this church in Ephesus is that the Lord does not identify their pornography. He doesn't identify their drug use. He doesn't identify the way they drank or, or the way they lied or the way that they got angry. He doesn't identify any sin. I mean, you might look at them and you can't, there's nothing wrong with them, but the Lord saw the heart that they had left their first love. I'll be honest, because you can, you can usually see a lack of passion, a lack of priority. It eventually manifests itself in people's hearts. I believe that many in the church have left their first love. I, when I was uh, reading this, and I, like I told you earlier, I think all of us in, in some way can probably relate to this. You know, I was just searching my own heart. Lord, have I? You know, because as a pastor, you're busy all the time, all the time, counseling and texting and praying and visiting uh, people and, you know, st studies and on the phone and, and all that kind of stuff. And it could be cleaning. And it doesn't matter. And you think you're okay. But then the Lord, he looks at your heart. And so I was just like, Lord, what does this mean? What does it really mean when someone has left their first love? And I was reading on this, and you know, you can read different commentaries, and I think people might overgeneralize it. You know, it's like you don't love people anymore. To me, it's you don't, your love for the Lord is not what it used to be. 
I was asking you people, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Because I really want to make sure I understand this. And, and this morning, the Lord just kind of gave me something when I was praying. He said, you know, who, what, where, when, why, how? Let's talk a little bit about this. Um, and so if you have your Bible, I was wondering if you could turn to Matthew chapter 22. Because if, if we're talking about like first love, like what does that mean? You've left your first love. Um, there's a few verses that, that I think of. Here in, in Matthew 22, notice what we read in verse 36. It says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And, and so we're going to start off, we're going to come back to this, but we're going to start off with who. Who do you love first? The first commandment is to love the Lord your God. The second is to love your neighbor. That's second. That's usually an outflow of the first. But the first is to love God first. You know, there's another passage you might want to jot down in Luke 14, 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, the Lord's not telling us to hate them, but what he's saying in the context and the culture of that day is that he was saying that there's no rival thrones, that when you compare your love for God and your love for anyone else, including yourself, there's no comparison. Do we love God before anyone else? Does he really come first? You know, we can violate this anytime we put anyone or anything before the Lord. The second passage I'd like you to turn to is John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, you might remember this story when Jesus is speaking to Peter. And remember what he said in, in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And and we don't know for sure what the these are, Um there's a couple of options. One might mean, hey, Peter, do you love me more than you love the other guys? Uh, other people believe is, Peter, do you love me more than you love fishing? Because in the context, and in in the, in it's interesting, when Peter, uh, he goes fishing, it's in, in the Greek language, it's in the aorist tense. And he basically says, I'm done uh, doing the other discipling thing in the Greek language. It's an aorist tense, which means a completed and perfect action. He says, and I'm going back to, be, to being a fisherman. And why would he go, why, why not go back to being a fisherman? There's a lot of different reasons, maybe. Maybe he made more money. Maybe he liked fishing. Maybe he enjoyed fishing. Maybe he liked the lake. 
It's beautiful when you're there. But the Lord had told Peter, I'm making you a, a fisher of men. And he went back to becoming a fisher of fish. See, the Lord, God, he was testing him. Do you love me more than these? Do you? You're back fishing now. You have left your first love. And you might be doing all this other stuff and busy like crazy. But Jesus, who's strolling through the church and walking in the midst of the congregation and searching our hearts, he knows the who and, and the what and then even the where. You know, it's interesting how when we look at life, you know, we might want more fun or more finances. We look sometimes to the different passions of life or possessions of life. And before you know it, you might end up like Demas. Paul wrote about him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 10. He says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. The who, the what, the where, and, and even the when. Watch, look to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go up and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know if you can see what's going on right here, but, but the Lord is gathering people to follow him because he wants to train them so they can preach the gospel so that souls can be saved from hell on the lake of fire. He wants to use their life you know, and it's not an easy life. Like the foxes have holes, the birds, they have their nests. Son of man, he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. It's not really comfortable or cozy. And so the Lord is, you know, calling these people. And it's interesting, though, their the excuses they begin to make. Basically, what they're saying is not now. Not now. Let me first go bury my father. Wait until it's, you know, time and not take care of this kind of stuff. Let me first take care of this. Well, that means if you put you first and you won't follow the Lord now, then you've left your first love. Who's first? You. I mean, a lot of times I think what happens as Christians, and I believe, I know how that is, believe you me. I am the, the king. I live in the nation of procrastination. I know how that is. But you might have Jesus on hold, and you're telling him, yeah, Lord, eventually when I get this done and that done and this person and that thing, then I'll start serving you the way that I should. And God says, you've left your first love. Because it applies to who and, and, and where and when. It has to be now. The Lord, I mean, when you, the Lord's all, wow, I see what you're saying. You're, you're like me first. One last passage um, 
Well, actually not. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're almost done with this portion. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is another one. Who, what, where, when, and then here we have the why. And we went over this, and I know you're familiar with this. Some of you have even memorized it. But look what Paul says in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the, the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so what is going on here? you got someone that's serving and teaching, and, and they're sacrificial, they have faith, all that kind of stuff, but they, they don't have love. They're not moved, they're not motivated by love. Why, why do you do this, Manny? Why? And there was a part of me that, that caught myself. Why are you studying for this Bible study? Why are, are you doing these things? And I almost wanted to say because, well, that's what I do every Saturday or Friday or Wednesday or Thursday. That's what I do those days. Why are you going to church service? Well, that's what we do. And the Lord just catches us and he says, no, you're, you're there because I love you and you love me. It's the who, it's the what, it's the where, it's the when, it's the why, and it's the how. And the last one, you don't have to turn there, but I'll give you the, the verse, Mark 12, 29 through 30 where he says, this is the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How do we love him? Is it with only part of our mind or part of our strength or part of our soul, part of our life? When we leave our first love, we only love him a fraction of what we should. And yet he's worthy to be loved like this. This is the first and great commandment upon which all the other commandments hang. And I was thinking about this by my first love and I was. I also just want to mention this because I need to be really careful about feelings, and you guys can tell I'm an emotional crybaby, and I'm sorry about that. But I remember how it was when I first became a Christian. How beautiful that was. I mean, there are no words I can use to describe that season of my life. And what ends, what ends up happening a lot of times is that honeymoon period, you know, we get over it and God is saying, no, you need to get back to it. 
I remember how it was when we first started the church, and some of you guys were there when we first started and how beautiful that was. But eventually it can become a machine, and you go through the motions. And God is just saying, do you remember how it was in the beginning, how pure, how, how, how beautiful, how innocent, how wonderful? God is saying, you kind of need to go back to that. You know, some people, they, they say, well, I'm still here. And, and, you know, but somewhere along the way, they, they might still be in that marriage relationship. But I, I know one couple married for like 50 years. But for 30 of those years, the husband was having an affair. And there are some people like that. Yeah, I'm still a Christian. Yeah, I still go to church. Yeah, I still serve. Yeah, I'm still discerning. Yes, I'm still orthodox. But your heart is somewhere else. So the Lord sees what's going on and then he gives the counsel. It's pretty simple. Look at Revelation 2 and verse 5. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and, and do the first works. You know, memory is such a, a precious gift. We can go back to the beginning and remember how special it was. You know, I know sometimes we can look back and it seems sinful, but I think other times it's very sensible. Remember how it was when you first discovered that you were free, you were set free, that all your sins were washed away, that you're forgiven, you're on the road to heaven, you have a relationship with the living God now? You know, it was like when Jacob served for Rachel. We read those amazing words in Genesis 29, verse 20. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. That was the beginning of their relationship. Imagine, you guys, if you had to work seven years to get your wife. Some of you guys would be like, man, it was like 21 years to me. It seemed like such a long time. And for Jacob, it was like nothing. Why? Because of his love for her. Well, that, that's kind of how it should be we're not talking about erasing the service and sacrifice and all that stuff, but you keep doing it, but you're doing it for the right reason because you're motivated by love. You return to your first love. He says, repent and do the first works. And, and we've seen that it's not just what we're doing, it's why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it and who we're doing it for. You know, it's not love... Uh, for if it's not love for the Lord, then really we saw in First Corinthians 13 that it's annoying and nothing and unprofitable. You know, we have to come back to our first love. And I don't know how that's going to work out in your life. I know for me, it means that when I get paid, the first check I write is to, to the Lord. It means that when I wake up in the morning, that the first thing I do is I spend time with the Lord. You know, for you, the Lord will show you what to do. But man, he has to be number one. You know, what do we need to do? We need to remember and, and repent and realize what the Spirit is saying there in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He then ends with the consequences. You know, he tells us um, in verse uh, 5, 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, God doesn't just want um, that superficial service and sacrifice. He doesn't even just want your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. And he says, if you, for whatever reason, have fallen into a religion and not a relationship any longer, then I'm going to deal with you. And there's a couple of different interpretations as far as what this means. To remove your lampstand. To remove your lampstand. Notice again there in verse 5, where I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. Some people believe that that's in reference to your witness. You no longer are a light. I can't use you to build up others or to bring me glory or to save souls. You're not a light anymore. But others believe and most believe it's more than that because the context here really ultimately is to the whole church. And in one sense, what Jesus is saying, unless the church gets right, the church, that local congregation, we're not talking about the big church because the big church, the universal church, it will never be defeated. But local congregations will close their doors. And that local church will cease to exist. That's what Jesus is saying here. Why? Because they had left their first love. And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. Unfortunately, by the Middle Ages, the church of Ephesus was non-existent. A traveler visiting the village found only three Christians there, and he said that these three had been sunken in ignorance and apathy. And what we find is that God is saying, this is my counsel. If you don't return to your first love, you're going to lose your light, lose your witness. You as a local congregation, the doors might be closed. But if you do, notice what he says here in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And, and what we find, the tree of life first found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. Remember the Bible says that God made a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what ended up happening in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world and, you know, they fell. God said, you better close up the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sinful condition. And then you fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 1 through 12, and there is the tree of life. Uh, one of the things that you're going to find, you guys, in the book of Revelation, and I think it's important for us to understand, is we have to take it literally whenever possible. There's a rule of inter interpretation that says, if it makes sense, seek no other sense. The tree of life is a real tree that one day... Because we returned to our first love that we will eat from and we will live forever. That word paradise in the Greek, it means a garden. Imagine, you guys, one day we're going to be there in that garden and we're going to eat of that tree of life. 
But you've got to make sure you don't do what the rest of the world is doing, what the rest of the church is doing. They're walking away from the Lord. If not, you know, physically, it's happening in their hearts. Remember that time in the book of John, chapter 6 and verse 66. It says that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't know where these people are going. What, they think the, the money and the house and the fame or the fun or the sin or the sex or all that kind of stuff is going to fill the void within? No, we've got to be careful. You guys, come. let's come back to where we belong. Not one foot in, one foot out. Just this beautiful, wonderful, intimate, personal, day-by-day, step-by-step walk with Jesus where he is number one. Truly, he is number one in our life. Let me close with a story. Maybe you heard of G.K. Chesterton. He's the great English novelist. And he was like me. He was very absent-minded. And, and he relied a lot upon his wife, who was efficient and who was organized. And she guided him in all his practical affairs, including his travel itinerary. Without her, he was lost. Any of you husbands can relate to that? I know I can. Anyways, true story. This is a true story. Once while on a lecture tour, he sent his wife a telegram. And the telegram said, I'm in Birmingham. Where ought I to be? And she wired him back with one word, home. You're supposed to be home, honey. And, of course, for us, that's what Jesus is saying. Come back to where you belong.